Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Let me ask you a question today. How many of you have ever been a part of a white elephant Christmas gift exchange? Anybody done that? Yeah, most people have. It's a lot of fun, right? And the point is not that the gift that you're giving or receiving is worth much. It's usually not. And maybe something you have laying around the house that you've not used in years and you want to get rid of it. Here's a perfect opportunity to do that. Uh, But that's what we're going to look at the next three weeks in our Christmas series, White Elephant. Because let me ask you another question. Uh, you, You know what a white elephant gift is. How many of you love reading the genealogies in the Bible? You love the list of names that are impossible to pronounce, that don't mean anything, right? So genealogies are like the white elephant gift of the Bible, okay? They don't seem to have a lot of value. We look over them. If we're honest, we probably skip reading those. Like, I got a free Bible reading day because it's a genealogy. I'm not going to read that day, so I'm off the hook kind of thing. So we're going to look at uh, Jesus' family history from the Gospel of Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, he lists the uh, heritage from Joseph, his earthly father's side of the family. It goes all the way back to the beginning of Judaism. So we're going to look at this and we're going to discover how if we don't just skip over it, if we don't just gloss over it, there are some names we're going to focus on the next three weeks uh, that I think can teach us some really important, valuable spiritual lessons from their lives in this list of the family of Jesus. So we're going to start at Matthew 1. We're going to read some of these names, and then we'll point out a few of them we're going to focus on for a few weeks. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse number 1, and here we go. This, is, this may be the first time you've ever actually read this in your life, okay? So buckle up. Here we go. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Let me just stop for a second. If you're looking for baby names, here's a list. You can bring these back. Bring them back, all right? Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon, and he was very tasty. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Skip down to verse 16. We're going to skip several generations. Finally, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. I have five names I underlined in this list of names, and they're the five women in Jesus' family line. That's who we're going to focus on the next three Sundays, are these five women in the family history of Jesus in this series, White Elephant. We'll look at two women today that may not seem related, but they are. We'll look at because they're in the same family tree, right? We'll look at two more women next week, and then on Christmas Eve, we'll look at the final woman in this list here in Matthew chapter 1. 
The two stories, the two women that we'll look at today, one of their stories is probably one of the best-known stories in the entire Bible. One of them may be one of the least-known stories in the entire Bible. And I'll give a heads up, the first story is a little bit PG-13, all right? So there's some stuff in there uh, that you, you know, like cover your ears, you know, clutch your pearls, that kind of thing. But it's in the Bible, and so we're going to look at these stories today and look at a shared theme that these two women have in common, and that is family dysfunction. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about your family at Christmas time, okay? We're not going to show your home videos or whatever. This is not, not what this is. But we're going to look at these two stories of these two women who are in the family line of Jesus, and they have this theme in common. Both stories involve messed up people, they involve deception and certainly dysfunction. So I'm going to tell both the stories at the outset, and then we'll look at a few applications from them to connect to our day and age and our lives today. The first story, the first thing we'll look at is this woman named Tamar. This is in Genesis chapter 38, and it really usually gets lost because it's in the middle of the story of Joseph. So in, in Genesis 37, Joseph has these dreams with his brothers and his father bowing down to him. They decide to sell him into slavery, and then they, they do that. And then this story happens, and then Genesis 39 picks up with Joseph in Egypt. So this story gets, kind of gets glossed over, but it's an important story in the history of the Jewish people and leading up to the birth of Jesus. So the story of Tamar actually begins with the story of Judah, her father-in-law. Judah is the fourth son listed in the sons of Jacob. He had 12 sons, and he's the fourth one listed in Genesis 38, or earlier in Genesis. So Judah is actually the brother that sort of saves Joseph's life. The brothers are fed up with their kid brother and his dreams of them bowing down to him, their father and mother bowing down to him. Who does this little creep think he is? And so they decide they're going to kill him to get him out of their life. So they throw him in a cistern, kind of wait for the right moment to do this. But Judah, the fourth in line, he says, wait, wait, wait. We don't really want his blood on our hands. It's going to get kind of messy. There's a caravan that comes by here. Let's sell him. That way we can make some coin, not kill anyone, but we can still be rid of our brothers. So Judah is the one that has this idea. So after they sell him into slavery, sometime later, he moves away from home, marries, and has three sons. This is where Tamar comes into the story. Judah's oldest son is promised to be married to Tamar. They marry, but the Bible says his oldest son was wicked and God strikes him dead. We don't know why or what happened. That's all we know is that one part of that one verse. So now Tamar is a widow. So the custom in that day and time would be for a widow to then be given to marriage to the next oldest brother in line. It seems kind of weird now, but culturally, back in the day, that was her only means of survival in that time. She can't just go out and get a job or start a business. She is destitute without someone to care for her, and so she's passed on to the second of Judah's sons. Now, this son was also wicked because he reluctantly marries Tamar, but refuses to have children with her because he knows even though it's our child, it's my older brother's heir. So it's not really mine. And so he refuses to have a child with Tamar. The scripture says because of that wickedness and not caring for this woman, God strikes him dead as well. So now Tamar is a middle-aged widow with two dead former husbands. Not a good proposition for her. There's one more son that Judah has, and he falsely says, when he's old enough, I'll let you marry him so he can take care of you. But if you read in Genesis 38, in parentheses, it tells us he had no intention to keep that promise. He's mistreating Tamar. He's throwing her out into the wild with no safety net. So she goes back for a time to live with her parents, and so while she's there, she learns, years pass, she learns that Judah's wife has now died, and so he's, also, he's now a widower. 
And so she has, she, while she's waiting there, we'll get to more of this in a, in a little bit, she sort of has this plan of how she can get justice in her situation. So she hears that Judah's going to go to a neighboring town to shear his sheep, and she decides, she's gonna, she knows what she's going to do. So Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and travels to the city gate between the two neighboring towns and waits there. When Judah comes up, he propositions her, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. And she says, well, name your price. He promises as payment for her services, he will give her one of the goats that he owns. But he doesn't have it with him, and so Tamar's smart. She's cunning. She says, well, what's the collateral that you're going to give me as a promise that you'll pay me what you have agreed? And he says, well, what do you want? She says, well, your walking, your, your walking staff and the cord has your seal, your family seal on it. I'll take that as collateral until you come back with the goat. So they sleep together. He goes back home. She goes back to her parents' house. So then he, he's going to, you know, follow up on his agreement. So he sends a friend with one of his goats back to the city gate to try to find this woman. But he can't find her. And the guy asks in town, I'm looking for the city prostitute, basically is what he says. We're like, yeah, we don't have one of those here. That person doesn't exist. That, that, what, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I, my friend told me, and I thought, and like, whatever. And so his friend comes back to Judah and says, I couldn't find her. They say she, there's no such person. And Judah basically says, oh, well, we tried. The second story that we'll look at is later on in the Old Testament, and it's one of the most famous stories in the entire Old Testament. De definitely one of the, the greatest known scandals in the scriptures. So we'll read the part of this opening part of this second uh, story of this second woman. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The story of David and Bathsheba is, again, one of the best-known stories in Scripture. And I would say even someone who doesn't have a lot of familiarity with the Bible has heard, knows of this story. So David is out, again, this is a, a freebie here at the beginning. But an important thing on David's end was David wasn't where he should have been. And so he ended up doing things he should not have done. That's where he gets into trouble. That was free. That's just a little throwaway, you know, tidbit there for you. But the point is, he sees this woman and he decides, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I can have anything I want. So he orders for this woman to come to the palace and he sleeps with her. He victimizes this woman. He abuses his power over this woman. And he sends her back home. Sometime later, though, she discovers she's pregnant. This is a problem because, as it says, her husband Uriah is out fighting the battle David should have been fighting, and so this is going to cause some questions and some problems. David begins to panic, and so he's got to figure out a way to cover his tracks. So what he does is he calls Uriah off the battlefield. He wines and dines him, and he basically says, hey, you get the weekend off. We're such good friends, and you're such a good you know, soldier, and so I want you to go and enjoy a weekend with your wife. But Uriah, being a noble person, says, I, I can't do that. My, 
My comrades can't just come home whenever they want. I'm not going to get special treatment, special favor. I'm not going to do that. So he refuses to sleep with his wife. So now David has a big problem on his hands. And so what he does is he signs Uriah's death warrant. He sends him back to the battlefield with a sealed letter to the general. Uriah doesn't know when he hands the letter to the general on the battlefield, it says, put Uriah at the hottest part of the battle, then have the men pull back. So that's what the the general follows, orders, and Uriah is killed in battle due to David's plan. So now David's off the hook because, oh, poor little Bathsheba, you know, the widow, I'm going to bring her in as one of my palace wives, and everything's fine because when she has a baby not long after, no one's the wiser of what David has done. But Bathsheba is victimized. She is shamed. She's not guilty of any wrongdoing. She has no agency here. She she can't say no to the king of Israel. And so, but here she is in this situation. And David thought he had gotten away with it, and they thought it was secret, until Nathan the prophet gets a word from the Lord, letting him know what's happened. He confronts David with this news. I know what you've done. God knows what you've done. I'm going to openly tell everyone what you've done, and God's going to judge you for your sin. So now Bathsheba, who's been victimized and shamed, also loses the baby. The baby dies as a judgment from God for David, yet she's affected by that. Two interesting kind of crazy stories filled with tons of dysfunction. Tons of stuff here with messed up people in a messed up situation. And yet, both of these women in these terrible situations in the midst of all this dysfunction are ancestors of the Savior of the world. And so, the question might be, okay, well, what's the point? Are there any redeeming qualities to these tragic stories? Uh, Are there any lessons that we can learn? And there are. So, there are three takeaways I want us to learn from these stories that I haven't finished yet. Maybe you've noticed they're both kind of like, Okay, where's the happy ever after? Maybe that's coming, maybe it's not. We'll see. But we will see three lessons or takeaways from these two stories. Here's the first thing that we see from these stories. God's power works despite the surrounding dysfunction. God's power works despite the surrounding dysfunction. Let's just acknowledge again the total dysfunction surrounding these two women in their lives. Look at Tamar first. The dysfunction doesn't just affect her life. It goes all the way back generations in the past. The the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they, they are messed up people. So if you go back to Abraham, he tried, remember, he tried to rush God's promise for a son that God promised him. And so he has two sons from two different women, and it causes a family feud, so much so that he decides one day to kick out baby mama and his oldest son into the desert. He mistreats them in that way. And this feud of these two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, has lasted now for 4,000 years. What you're reading in the headlines right now in the Middle East started with Abraham. Thanks a lot, Abe. You know, thanks a lot for that. Appreciate that. But that's still going on to this day. These two nations came from these two sons that still war today. Family dysfunction is an understatement here. Then the, the youngest son of Abraham, Isaac, also dysfunctional in that he and his wife played favorites with their kids. Parents, avoid the trap. It's a trap, right? And this causes another family feud that is laced with deception and betrayal. And then Jacob, who was the favorite son, right, of his mother, he follows suit and favors Joseph. He's got 12 kids, right? You can, you can like, get, field a football team with one to spare, and you're going to choose one as your obvious favorite. 
So he follows the same dysfunctional pattern here, and so much so that Tamar's father-in-law, Judah, decided to sell him into slavery. We see the dysfunction surrounding Tamar. Wicked people, jealous people, deceitful people, and because of them, she suffered sadness and loss. Look at the Bathsheba, the dysfunction surrounding her. I mean, think about she's sexually victimized by the king of Israel. It doesn't get much worse than that for her. And what's even weirder and more dysfunctional is her husband Uriah is listed later on in 2 Samuel 23 as one of King David's mighty men. One of his greatest warriors on the battlefield, one of his most trusted advisors, Uriah, this is the woman he chose to sleep with, was one of his best men's wives while he's away. She has no power in the situation. She's used as a pawn then when he's trying to cover up his sin. He doesn't really bring her in because he has any affinity for her or feel guilt for, well, this is my child. No, he does it to cover up his sin. She's used as a pawn and she suffers the loss of a child as a result of no fault of her own. There's dysfunction all around, yet in both situations, God works his power in and through each of these women. Back to the story of Tamar, I kind of left it hanging there on a negative note where she's back at home and Judah went to find her, couldn't find her, oh well, who cares, it's over. But then the story doesn't end there, there's a twist to the end of the story. So let's read the end of the story, Genesis 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute and now because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. That was the youngest son. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. So all these years where she's been cast aside, she's been victimized, she's been made false promises and lied to, she's been deceived by her own family, she's used this time, God's used this time for her to come up with a way to find redemption in the end, for her to receive justice in the end. So it was a clever scheme here, and Judah admits he was wrong. He deceived her, he deprived her, he left her in a vulnerable spot intentionally, but God used it for, ha for her benefit. Here's how. So when she's pregnant, not only does she have one son, she has two. She has twins. So she has now double hope of provision for the rest of her life two sons to provide for her in her old age. And then on top of that, culturally, this is a long-term blessing in disguise because since she had children with her father-in-law at the time, she's now the matriarch of the family in reverse. You see that? She didn't have the grandchild of the father of the family. She had the two sons of the father of the family, the only two named in Matthew 1 that connect all the way to Jesus. 
And Judah eventually becomes the largest of all the 12 tribes of Israel, the largest, most powerful tribe in the entire nation. From that came King David, who we already talked about and we'll talk about more in a minute. And then from that came Jesus. God's power worked despite the surrounding dysfunction in Tamar's life. The same for Bathsheba. I left kind of a story on the negative note there where she's left childless and alone and abandoned. Even though she's in the palace, she's sort of one of David's wives. She suffered great loss. But then she ends up having a son with David named Solomon. But then she's actually used later on, later in her life, in a pretty powerful way to save the kingdom. Because in David's old age later on, one of his other sons decides he's just going to announce himself as king. He's not next in line. He's not, David's not said you're the next king. He's already promised Solomon's going to be king. But this other son decides, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. It even says in this story that David never disciplined this son, and so he's out of control. It's a totally dysfunctional situation. And so then the prophet Nathan, who years ago called out the sin of David, he now goes to Bathsheba and says, you've got to do something. You've got to talk to him. He will not listen to anybody, but he'll listen to you. And so then Bathsheba goes to David and says, Hey, you remember years ago when you promised me that our son Solomon would be the next king? And David said, Yeah, I remember that. And she said, Well, you've got a problem on your hands because your other son over here is claiming to be king. He's setting up his army. He's getting ready. He's going to coordinate himself. He's going to try to take over the kingdom from you. And I'm telling you, David, if he does that, if he becomes king, then Solomon and me are as good as dead. He will wipe us out in a moment. And so then David has a priest and the prophet publicly do a ceremony for Solomon first instead. So he establishes Solomon as king and undercuts his other son. And really, in the end, for a while at least, they live happily ever after. Bathsheba was used by God despite the surrounding dysfunction in her life. Despite what was swirling around both of these women, God mightily used them to accomplish his purpose. Let me ask you, what dysfunction surrounds your life? Maybe it is a sketchy family history. Like maybe in your, you know, lineage, your, your tree up there, maybe you've got some people that we, you know, don't, we, don't, we cross them out. We don't talk about them. We don't say their name. Like they were not good people. Maybe that, and that maybe affects you. It trickles down all the way to you generations later. Maybe it's current family dysfunction. You know, maybe that's why you dread the holidays sometimes. Like I do not want to be around these people, but it's Christmas, so we kind of have to. Maybe that's where you find yourself. Maybe it's rebellious kids. Maybe it's manipulative in-laws. Not you guys. Um, maybe you tried to go into business with a, with a family member and it didn't go well and now it's just caused a rift. Uh, maybe you've allowed political differences to rip your family apart. Maybe there's dysfunction in your family right now. Maybe it's other types of dysfunction. Maybe you're in a very toxic work environment that you just feel like I can't get out of because I'll never find another job that pays this good. Or maybe eventually I'll get a new boss. Or maybe eventually things will work out. But you just find yourself in a swirling storm of dysfunction. Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend or someone that you thought you were close to and they just stabbed you square in the back. You find yourself in dysfunction. So maybe you're left asking yourself, what is God going to do with a life like mine? What, what is God going to do in a situation like this? How can he make sense of this? I'm way too dysfunctional for God to do something through me. 
but you're wrong. Romans 8.28 says this, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Not everything is good, but God can bring good from anything. Say that again. Not everything that happens to you is good, but God can bring anything, God can bring good from anything that happens to you. We see that here in Scripture. Even your dysfunction, God can make something from that or despite that. Because only God can heal families and relationships. Only God can mend hearts. Only God can change circumstances. Only God can alter situations. Only God can turn things in your favor. Only God can bring hope to a hopeless situation. Only God can help you find purpose in your pain. Only God can do that, but he can do that. So this Christmas season, let's just say to God, hey, God, I'm messed up. This is a messed up situation. This is totally dysfunctional, but I'm giving myself to you. I'm giving this to you because I know you can do something with it. I know you can work in spite of the surrounding dysfunction. God can do that. The second thing that we see from these two stories is that God's grace frees you from shame. Both of these women dealt with shame and of no fault of their own. They were both victimized in different ways by people who should have done better, should have known better, but did not. And in Tamar's case, she even took a chance by doing something shameful and hoping it would work out in the end hoping God would use that shameful thing of being a town prostitute, right? That's a shameful thing, and yet God used that. The tables were turned because when her plot was revealed, Judah says, she's more righteous than I am. She's acted more righteously and justly than I did, even in this shameful way. God's grace released her from shame. With Bathsheba, by God's grace... She was given another son, and then through his grace, she was instrumental in saving the future of the kingdom of Israel. It was God's grace. So she's not a shamed victim, but she's a heroine in this story in the history of Israel. And they're both listed on purpose through the Holy Spirit's inspiration by Matthew in the line of Jesus. You see, shame could have defined both of these women, but instead, God's grace define them not their shame and maybe you're here today and you're dealing with your own shame maybe you've been victimized in some way you're like i can't tell anyone that's happened to me if that ever got out i'm done for like people would just not look at me the same they wouldn't think of me the same my life as i know it would be over you don't want to acknowledge it i'll just suppress it i'll be okay and you find yourself a wreck a dysfunctional wreck Maybe you're wrestling with shame over what you have done. Maybe you're in the, maybe you're in the David and Judah category. Maybe you, you're like, okay, I can't believe I did that, but I did that. And if anyone finds out that I did that, then my life is also equally over. I've caused shame to myself. I've caused shame to my faith. God could never forgive someone like me for what I've done. And so if I keep it a secret, then it'll be okay. And yet you find yourself equally a dysfunctional wreck the key is to let god's grace free you from shame because that's what he does 
You look at the life of Jesus. So in John 8, there's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. She's publicly pulled out into the street to be stoned. She's been shame upon shame upon shame is piled on top of her. And what does Jesus do? After he makes a religious point to the people who are going to stone her that they're equally sinful in their own way, he then says, where are all your accusers? And she says, they're gone. And so Jesus says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. His grace freed her from shame. John 4, the woman at the well in Samaria, she's lived a life of shame. She's had so many husbands, so many boyfriends, so many relationships. She's ostracized from polite society, coming to the well by herself at the heat of the day. And yet an interaction with Jesus changes her life because he frees her from shame through his grace. He says, I came for people just like you. You're the reason I'm here. He freed her from shame because of his grace. You think about someone like Zacchaeus in Luke 19, who's a tax collector, and you would think, well, that's not shameful. Yeah, it is. Zacchaeus is a Jew working for the Roman Empire. He's seen as a traitor. He's a sleazeball. He's a slime bucket. Stay away from him. Yeah, he's got money, but he's not happy. And yeah, he's got stuff, but he's got no friends, and his family have abandoned him. He's all alone. He's miserable. He's got to be miserable inside. And yet Jesus, by name, points to him and says, hey, I'm going to have dinner at your house. And at that dinner, his life is transformed. He becomes a new person because the grace of Jesus freed him from shame. One more example, and it's similar to Zacchaeus, but Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, was a tax collector. He's a traitor to his people. He's a sleazeball. He's a slime bucket. Stay away from him. You know, get away. And yet Jesus says, follow me. And he became one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, one of the gospel writers in Scripture that we're reading about today. God's grace frees you from shame. If you've been shamed, it doesn't have to define you. Romans 8 verse 1 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And verse 2 says, Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. If you've been shamed, it doesn't have to define you. You can acknowledge it. it I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm not saying it was right what happened. But I'm saying we acknowledge the hurt, the pain, the loss. We give it to God, and then we can find freedom. If your shame is of your own doing, it doesn't have to derail you either. You can confess your sin and shortcoming. You can give it to God. You can seek restitution, and then you can be free. God's grace frees you from shame. Here's the the final thing we'll look at for a couple minutes, and that's this. God's justice makes all things right. In the end, both Tamar and Bathsheba receive justice. In both cases, the wrong done against them is publicly exposed for the wrong that it was. It doesn't stay hidden. It's not swept under the rug. It's not forgotten about. It's not excused. It's exposed. And both, in the end, as we've said, turn out for the better. Tamar becomes the matriarch of the largest tribe in her country. Bathsheba becomes the mother of the third king of the nation of Israel. Now, when I say all things right, again, going back to Romans 8, 28, it doesn't mean, all right does not mean what happened to these people was right. It doesn't mean it was appropriate or God was pleased. No, obviously he wasn't. What it means is God set everything right that had been wrong. 
in his own way, in his own timing, by his providence and sovereignty, he set all things right. We see this on a national level with Israel several generations after Solomon, Bathsheba's son, is king. After he's king, the kingdom splits into things just go out of control. The entire nation of Israel is completely dysfunctional. There's rampant idolatry. There's corruption from the top down. They've abandoned God in every way you can imagine. A people who were called out by God for a purpose to worship and serve and live for him have totally abandoned him. And so God promises through the prophets that judgment will come. Justice will come. I will not let this continue. He even says in in, uh, Micah 3, we'll look at Micah 5 in a second, but in Micah 3, he says Jerusalem will be in ruins, is what he promises in Micah chapter 3. And they go into exile in Babylon for over 70 years, but despite this, God points to a time in the future after his judgment upon them. This is Micah chapter 5, starting at verse 2. God says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from the exile to their own land, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. Who is this one that the prophet talks about? It's Jesus. The ultimate hope for God's people then and now is Jesus, the descendant of Tamar and Bathsheba. Go up the line. They're there. Their descendant was the one the prophets foretold, the one that their people had long waited for. And not just any person or any man, but God even says here, he's going to come from you on my behalf. It's the God-man, Jesus, whom brings hope in these dysfunctional situations. The beauty and the power of this Christmas season is that Jesus came to make all things right. He came into a dysfunctional world. He came from a dysfunctional family tree, as we've seen and will continue to see, to ultimately defeat sin and death and be our eternal Savior and King. Eventually, he will set all things right. He will bring justice. Now, we pray for that now, and in some times, in some situations, to some degree, we get justice, but not always. Not always fully or completely, but eventually that day will come come we look forward through jesus to a day when he as as revelation says will wipe every tear from our eyes where it says no evil thing can enter the holy city of god where sin is finally and fully punished where everything is set right but until then it's sort of like the song have yourself a merry little christmas so until then we'll have to muddle through somehow that's where we are right now I haven't seen justice. This situation is still dysfunctional. I still don't know how God's going to do anything through this, but we give God the dysfunction, the shame, the pain, and we live in hope for the day when he will make all things right, when he will set the world right, when we will see him and worship him face to face. That is our hope, even in a dysfunctional Christmas. Let's pray. God, this Christmas season, 
I pray that we would give you our dysfunction. We would just acknowledge, God, we're messed up people. We live in a messed up world. Things are not as you originally designed. We know that. We acknowledge that. And so our only hope is you. We acknowledge only you can make something beautiful of our brokenness. Only you can make something desirable from our dysfunction. And so we give our dysfunction to you. We don't try to hide it or suppress it or excuse it or escape it. We just hand it to you and say, God, make something of this mess. We give you our shame. We give you when we've wronged others and we've been wrong. We don't want to wallow in that. We don't want to sweep it under the rug like David tried to, like Judah tried to. No, we want to acknowledge to you how broken we are, how shameful we can be, and just give it to you and let you do something with that. And while we live in a world that is dysfunctional and unjust, our ultimate hope is not just justice in the here and now, but ultimate cosmic justice. When one day you will set the universe perfectly in order. One day it will be as it was in Genesis 1 when you made it perfect and in order with no dysfunction. That's not where we live now. That's not our reality now, but it is our hope for the future. It's not our current life, but it is the hope of the life yet to come that you will set all things right. You will bring justice to the earth, just like you brought joy to the earth with your birth. Our dysfunction doesn't have to define us or derail us because you have a destiny for us. And so we pray that we would live in the hope of what that destiny is and what it can be through your power working in us and through us. God, give us that hope today that you work through our dysfunction, swirling around our lives, and you have a plan and a purpose for each of us. Thank you for this encouragement today. I pray we would leave this place today with that in our hearts and be back next time ready for more of you in Jesus' name. Amen.